As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic, helping you to understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we hear from today's guest, I just want to remind you to head over to our website, premierunbelievable.com, to find more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can get yourself a free ebook. But now for today's show. I am joined by Trevin Wax, founding editor of The Gospel Project and author of numerous books, including his most recent, The Thrill of Orthodoxy. Trevin has also been a guest on our C.S. Lewis podcast, so do check that out. But our focus today is on orthodoxy. Trevin, before we take a deep dive into orthodox theology, would you just share a little bit about yourself and what was your experience of God growing up? I grew up in a in a Christian home, a Christian family that that believed it was very important for me to understand the basics of Christianity early on. And I'm very thankful for that. Uh, I was part of a church that was um, very focused on Bible memorization and um, being able to understand just the rudimentary aspects of Christianity early. And so I came to a a, a relationship with with God and, and understanding a need for salvation early on as a child, and then as a teenager, uh, since the Lord uh, really deepening that work in my heart. And I remember uh, I was 14 years old when I I, I suddenly realized it was a a, a weekend uh, church event, and I realized if if everything I believe about Christianity really is true, then it changes my whole life then my whole life will be different from this point on. That I, If I say Jesus is Lord, that means I have to follow him. <laughs> you know, yeah. I have to do what he says to do. And so uh, the rest of my life has really been uh, you know, an outworking of, of that deepening realization. I've uh, been able to do cross-cultural ministry and mission work overseas. And in Romania, I spent several years. Um, uh, my, my wife is from Romania. We have something of a, a third culture family. And uh, I've been writing and reading and, and serving in various churches uh, uh, since, you know, since, since that time. So uh, just the Lord has been very good to me over the years as he's given me opportunities to grow and to hopefully help the church grow as well. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, your time in Romania. I think we're going to talk about that in the next issue of the podcast. So do keep listening. Um, but but I'd love to hear just, you know, where did the thrill of orthodoxy come from? Why did you write the book? I believe every generation needs to recover a sense of awe and wonder at the beauty of the Christian faith. It's very easy to take for granted things. 
I think that's true, not even of Christianity, but just of astonishing things in general. I think we get so easily bored with wonders that are all around us, you know, the way the world works, how things happen, the beauty on display in nature. You know, there's so many different ways in which our eyes grow dim. They're just not open to the to the glory of what's around us. And I think the same is true with Christianity, with, with our, our, our faith. We can so easily, we can subscribe to certain doctrines and then and then begin to take them for granted, to not be astonished at them. And and I believe when a generation loses confidence in the beauty and the goodness of Christian truth, then it's not it's very easy to stray. It's very easy to drift into other to, you know, theological error or into heresies even. Um, and so one of the ways to do that, you can, you can rail against heresies all day long, or you can recapture a sense of awe and wonder at the, the thrill of orthodoxy. And that's what this book is about. It's, it's helping the, the church recognize that the beauty is not in the faddish and the innovative doctrines that people would come up with to bring excitement and a jolt of excitement or enthusiasm to the Christian life, they're in those time-tested truths that, have, that, that the church has believed and that continue to endure. Now, some may argue that thrill and orthodoxy are not two words that you'd often expect to go in the same sentence. I mean, how would you respond to that? Because you clearly do think that orthodoxy is thrilling. I do think that a lot of people have the the idea that theological truths or doctrines, uh, orthodoxy, that's like a stuffy list of things <laughs> you just have to adhere to, I guess. It's its like getting excited about a math textbook or something, you know? <laughs> and what I want I, what I want to do is, is something similar. Some of my favorite writers, you know, people like C.S. Lewis, uh, uh, Dorothy Sayers, G.K. Chesterton, uh, some of my favorite writers, I think, have done this well. That that they've that they've shown, you know, Sayers in particular talks about how the dogma of Christianity, mm-hmm. that the drama is the dogma, the dogma is the drama. There is a there's a sense in which uh, if we really believe what we confess in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, we're talking about the most exciting story in human history. It, this is the story of our world, and it is breathtaking in its scope. What we believe to be true about Jesus Christ is astounding. Um, the fact that we believe the same things to be true about Jesus Christ that people for 2,000 years have believed to be true about him unites us to people across time and space um, to all confessing the same Jesus Christ as Lord. And so I want people to, to recover a sense of, of the adventure of Christian theology, the adventure of what it is that we believe to be true about Jesus, and and to uh, to 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 recognize that that adventure is in discovering truths that we did not invent or make, but that if we submit to them, will remake us, will change us, and transform us. I mean, you definitely touched on this already, but but why do you think that orthodoxy matters? I think orthodoxy matters because without orthodoxy, we are basically adrift in a sea of personal preference. Uh, we we drift toward all sorts of different things that would make the faith more palatable for the times that we live in. We, we, are, we tend to, to shave off the sharper image, edges of Christianity. We, we tend to resist the constraints of Christianity right in those very places where the spirit of the age would most lead us toward, toward compromise. So without orthodoxy, orthodoxy helps us recognize that we are, um, you know, in, in, in Chesterton's line, we don't want to be a church that moves with the world 
We want to be a church that moves the world. And orthodoxy helps us to, it provides the proper boundaries and guardrails so that we won't veer off into all sorts of heresies, but also so that we will have a, a, a such an, a, an unlimited, indescribable room for freedom to flourish within those guardrails and parameters. I think that's why orthodoxy matters. It's not because orthodoxy is set against freedom. Orthodoxy provides the foundations and the limits and the constraints to, to provide us with maximum freedom. And I think that's where the adventure lies and why we should, again, be, be thrilled by the Christian truth. And I suppose from a kind of practical perspective, how do we maintain that orthodoxy? You know, not shaving off the edges, as you've said there, but but also remaining kind of evangelistically focused when perhaps some of the orthodox views may put some non-Christians off. How do we kind of have that balance of articulating conservative theology, but in a kind of pastorally and evangelistically sensitive way, do you think? That's a that's a great question. I, I do fear that there are different temptations that that churches can fall into. Um, there's the temptation of of thinking I call it being the faithful few. You know that basically we're the only ones that are left. Everyone else is compromised. Uh, if we can just maintain what we have, that will be success. Let's just all huddle up together. Uh, you lose the adventure of Christian orthodoxy when that takes place because you lose your missionary focus. You're no longer seeking to, to bring the, the, the truths of orthodoxy into, um, into an encounter, a missionary encounter with the world. Um, on the other side, there are churches that, that believe that the only way that you're going to preserve the faith in the next generation is to be adapting it constantly. Mm-hmm. I call that the always adapting tendency. You know, if we could just alter this or change this or adapt to this, you know, you know we need Christianity for a modern era or whatnot. The problem there is that if you're constantly adapting Christianity, eventually you lose any Christianity to adapt. You you lose the foundational elements of orthodoxy that have united the church throughout history and continue to unite the church around the world. We belong to a global people. The the Christianity is going to rub up against different cultures in different places because it is a transcultural truth. It it transcends the 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 particular uh cultural uh, aspects of one time and one place. And so we should expect Christianity to be countercultural and unpopular in for different reasons in different places in the world. Uh, so instead of succumbing to the temptation of being the faithful few or being the always adapting, the real adventure and the one that I want to, to call us to is one in which we bring a we bring the Christian truth into a missionary encounter with the world where we have that adventure of, of living like missionaries, not adapting the Christian faith, but applying the Christian faith in new ways and new times. And there are all sorts of ways of articulating Christian truth in, in new ways and fresh expressions for the world that we live in, helping people see not only that we believe Christianity to be true, but that we believe it to be beautiful and good. And that is the task. That is the adventure. And that's where all of the conversation and where a lot of our energies should be focused. You've got a great line in The Thrill of Orthodoxy, which is um, the church faces her biggest challenge, not when new errors start to win, but when old truths no longer wow. Why do you think old truths no longer wow? And what do we do about that? I think in some cases it's because old truths, can, we can become so over familiar with them. You know, familiarity often is, is the enemy of wonder. 
I, I find it interesting when people who live by the glories of the ocean wind up going to vacation in the mountains <laughs> or vice versa. There are people that live in the mountains. They wind up going to the beach for vacation. But, but I think one of the reasons why that's the case is we have to change the scene. We have to change the scenery a bit in order to really see the scene. Um, we, you know, you come back to your home in the mountains or you come back to your home at the, and suddenly you see its glory afresh with new eyes. So one of the reasons old truths no longer wow us is because we, you know, they get, they can become routine. We can begin to take them for granted, just like we take for granted some of the beautiful things around where we, where we might live. Uh, but there's some other reasons as well. I think we can, we can no longer be wowed by old truths because we don't have the patience for theological study. We, we think only in terms of what's immediately practical to my everyday life. Um, we can sometimes become unsettled by some of those old truths. You know, some of those old truths don't sit well today with a contemporary sensibility. And and I think in t instead of bringing our sensibilities in line with those old truths, it would be easy to shift some of those old truths to where they're more in line with our contemporary sensibilities. Um, and so I think there are various reasons why we may wind up having those old truths losing their their luster and why we need to recover that, because that's part of what faithfulness will look like in our time. So how do we combat that complacency that you touched on at the beginning of that question? You know, what, what do we do as Christians to stop being so complacent, do you think? Well, I think there's various things that we can do. I mean, one of them would, would be to, to recapture a sense of rootedness in the, the historic Christian faith uh, in church history, just being wowed again by the fact that this has been delivered to us that this treasure has been passed on to us for the past 2,000 years, um, and that people in various denominations and groups that have different views on all sorts of things still remain remarkably united on the essentials of the Christian faith. I think that's an astounding thing to consider when you think about all of the different cultures where Christianity is represented, when you think about Christianity across the world, Christianity throughout time and history. Uh, so I think that's one way of recapturing that that thrill and, and moving away from that complacency. Um, of course, opening the scriptures and continuing to be in the scriptures afresh and expecting the Lord to speak to us is is another way. Um, but I would, I would also recommend that... Um, we, one of the ways we can recapture the thrill of orthodoxy and fight against complacency is by sharing the gospel, by evangelism, by speaking to others about the Christian faith, to people who are open and interested to hearing more. Uh, and I mean, I think we start with our own family members, for that matter. One of the best things that you can do as a, as a, a believer is if you're a parent, for example, it's to, to introduce your child to these wonderful truths. Um, you know, I, as a parent, one of the things that you love to do is to take you know, to, to, to introduce your child to a toy that you loved growing up or mm. to watch a favorite movie that, that meant a lot to you as a kid or a teenager, to, sh to show that to your, to, to your son or daughter. You know, there's something, there's something magnificent about reliving those experiences with your eyes wide open, reliving them uh, 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 in, through the eyes of your children. Um, the same is true of passing on the faith to our children. And the same is true if, if, you know, whether or not we have children or whether or not we're married or whatever stage of life we're in, when you see other people come to faith in Christ and you see them raise their arms to the Lord in, in a sense of devotion and worship, and you recognize that these truths are now being implanted in their hearts for the first time, there's nothing quite like that uh, to recapturing the thrill of orthodoxy. And so one of the best ways to, uh, to really savor the gospel for yourself is to share it with others.
You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. I guess when people hear that, they, they might be sort of terrified, the, the thought of doing evangelism or sort of sharing the gospel. Um, do, do you think... Do you think part of that is that, you know, they've not studied theology or they don't really know where to start? I mean, do you think studying theology, that sort of thing, is that something we all should be doing? I I know you and I sort of have done that officially, but is that something that people should be looking to do just kind of in their own time? And, And if so, is there somewhere good to start or is that something we can just do through kind of the teaching in our church and that sort of thing? Well, I think there's two answers to that. I, I, I don't think that everyone is called to be a vocational theologian. So I, I wouldn't want to put the burden on people that they need to become theological experts that can parse the intricacies of you know every aspect of the Nicene Creed or, or, <laughs> or every difficult passage of Scripture. Um, I don't think everyone is called to that level of theological education, and, and nor would it be good if everyone were. And there are different gifts for different people. But the second part of the answer to that question is that we are all theologians at some level, whether we recognize it or not. We all have a view of God. We all have a confession of Jesus Christ. If we belong to his church, we are we are doing theology. Even those who say, you know, I don't need to fool with all that theological stuff. I'll just, let, you know, let me just uh, love Jesus and love my neighbor uh, and be about his mission. Well, okay, but then you've got to answer the question, who is this Jesus you're called to love? Um, you know, Jesus himself asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Uh, you have to ask the question, what does it mean to love our neighbors? Not just as the way the world would define love, but what does true love actually look like according to a biblical perspective? Or just be about all about, you know, his mission and sharing the gospel. Okay, what is the gospel we are called to share? What's the extent of the mission? These are all questions that, that, that push us back into the realm of theology. So the question really isn't, will we do theology? The question is, will the theology we do be good or not? Mm. Uh, What kind of theologians will we be? We all have a view of God. I believe it was A.W. Tozer who said the most important thing about us is what pops into our mind when we think about God and who he is. So um, I do, I do, I, I would just encourage those who believe that they're unqualified to share the gospel just to remember um, it's not in getting every aspect theologically correct. That's not where the power is. I, I don't really consider myself to be amazing, excellent as an evangelist myself. Uh, I've, I, I've often said that my my feeling of sharing the gospel or doing evangelism is a, it's like a clumsy little kid handling a stick of dynamite, you know? But it's <laughs> it's the dynamite where the power is. It's not in my presentation. It's not in my articulation. It's not in me getting every single thing exactly right. It's in recognizing that God is working through spiritual conversations to bring people closer to himself. That's where the power is anyway. And so we've got to remember that. It's not in our qualifications. It's in the power of the gospel to change lives. That's That's where the authority and the power comes from. I guess you sort of touched on this just now, but but how do we hold intention, our desire to cling to orthodoxy, but also, I guess, acknowledging that we don't have all of the answers, you know, there's there's lots we don't know. I suppose if you want to kind of put names on it, like orthodoxy and mystery, how, how do we hold those two intention, do you think? I think a lot of people want to pit orthodoxy and mystery over against one another mm-hmm. today, almost as if to say, well, if you have, you you can't really be certain of anything. If you're certain of something, you can't be humble. Mm. And I want to push against that a little bit because I don't think that's true in, in other areas of life. I, I don't think that I'm lacking humility when I'm certain 
about the math problems that I'm helping my my son with when he's doing his homework, you know, as as a fourth grader. Um, I can be certain of the answers and still be humble, just like I can be humble when I'm, you know, helping my older son with his calculus problems and realizing I'm not very good at that, you know, <laughs> that I need a lot of help there. There's a lot that I don't understand. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul says, we know in part. And I think that's a good uh, thing to hold in tension, to recognize that we we do only know in part. We don't know everything. We don't know things comprehensively. We don't have a comprehensive certainty uh, that comes from a God's eye view of the world. We can't expect to have that. That's one of the challenges of the old Enlightenment and modernist uh, pursuit of knowledge. There was this sense of we could somehow plumb the depths of everything and somehow come to a, a comprehensive God, uh, God's eye view of everything. Uh, we cannot have that. To seek that would be idolatrous. But lest we forget, Paul also, he did say we know in part, but he also did say we know. And so there's a sense in which our personal confidence in the goodness of the gospel, our personal sense of certainty in, uh, um, uh, that is part of the definition of faith that we see in Hebrews, um, this, is, this is part of what it means for us to, to, to follow Christ. So there is a sense in which orthodoxy leads us into deeper and deeper mysteries, Revealing much of those, many of those mysteries as we go along, but also recognizing that uh, uh, we will never plumb the depths of the identity of God. In fact, all, all we'll never even in eternity, I don't believe, have a full understanding or grasp of God because that would make us to be God himself. We will be coming into ever more increasing knowledge of who God is without ever re- re- reaching the end of that infinity. And so instead of keeping us away from orthodoxy, I think that understanding of mystery and transcendence should drive us deeper into the the beautiful mysteries of the truth that have been revealed through orthodoxy, because that's going to be the journey of discovery that we will be on for all of eternity as we behold the one who has saved us. Um, we're going to be talking more about this in the next podcast as well. I feel like there's so much to unpack in your brilliant book. But just a final question to, to end off this episode. How do we recapture the thrill of orthodoxy, do you think? Well, I hope that one way of doing that would be by, um, by, by being part of a community of faith who subscribes to the same orthodox beliefs. Um, I don't think this is a project we can do on our own. I'd love to say, well, just buy my book and it will solve it all for you. you know? <laughs> That's a good start, or to be though, able isn't to it? Say, That's right. <laughs> or to be able to just say, oh, just read more or just do mm. more. No, I think, I think the community of faith is vital here because the Christian life was not meant to be lived alone. And I think whenever we are drifting away from orthodoxy or whenever we're losing a little bit of that passion, we need to be serving others in the name of Jesus. Mm. Serving others in the name of him, knowing that, uh, uh, this is one of the ways in which we are connected to believers in a local community of faith, and then connected to, you know, as often as we can, we need to be encountering Christians in other parts of the world that remind us that this beautiful truth, these beautiful truths that we confess are shared. We have a shared confession with people in many different cultural contexts. And I think that helps us regain the emphasis. You know, you often hear people going on a mission trip or to another part of the world and being astounded by the level of unity that they immediately mm. feel with believers and sisters in other parts of the world who worship in very different ways than, than we may be a, um, a, um, you know, accustomed to. Um, and yet, when we find ourselves in those moments, I think what's actually thrilling us is not just the camaraderie and the friendship and brotherhood we may feel with people in other parts of the world, 
but that sense of a shared unity in confession. Mm. And so I would recommend, again, that we we become reacquainted with the church throughout history and the church around the world as we open up the scriptures and seek a fresh word from God for today. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic with me, Ruth Jackson. As always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. Please do let us know what you think of the programme by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk or you can get in touch via our social media. Thank you for listening and do join us next week where we'll be hearing more from Trevin Wax on culture wars, objections to the Christian faith and evangelism. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.